you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to Jonah uh, chapter 2. We're going to cover verses 1 through 10. Uh, when I was 13 years old, I had a paper route. Anybody in here have a paper route when you were uh, younger or not younger, whenever? Uh, I had a paper route, and it was the Dayton Daily News. The, the Monday through Saturday was the evening edition, so uh, that was something I delivered when I, I got out of school, got on my bike, delivered the, the paper, and then um, Sunday morning was the early morning edition, so that was at 5.30 on Sunday morning. you get up and do the same thing. And um, Every once in a great while, uh, my sister, who was a year and a half, or is still a year and a half younger than I am, um, every once in a while, if I had a baseball game early that evening, she would help me deliver papers. Now, I had to pay her for this, but it was something that, that she would do. And on one particular day, we were, we were delivering uh, my paper out, and we were kind of going every other house. And then we both noticed at exactly the same time, a little farther up the street, it was actually, I still remember it was Longfellow Drive. So we noticed a little farther up the street that one of the houses on my route, at one of the houses, the dog had gotten out. And the dog was circulating the front yard, barking uh, wildly and angrily. And so right at the same time, we both kind of pulled into the middle of the street on our respective bikes, my sister and I. We looked at that house. We sat there in silence thinking, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So as any good teenage brother would do, I looked at my sister and I looked at the house with the angry dog and I said, you've got that one. And uh, she said, I don't think so. I said, well, you do want to get paid, don't you? They need their newspaper. She said, I don't, I don't think I want to do that. She said, well, what about the dog? the dog? The dog looks mean. The dog looks angry. And I said, look, you have to understand. You have to understand. This is a big brother talking to a little sister. You have to understand, if you go up and you don't act like you're afraid at all, if you don't act like you're bothered at all with the dog, that dog's not going to bother you. That dog just wants to scare you. He doesn't want to harm you. My sister said, I'm going to let you test that theory. And uh, she just sped off on her bike, rode past the dog as fast as she could. The dog, you know, barked a little bit, but she went on. So even back then, I realized i got to practice what I preach, right? So I put on my coolest look, my coolest facial expression. I thought, I'm not even going to rush. I'm going to pedal up slowly. I go up slowly to that house, and the dog lunged at me with all the angry determination that I could uh, imagine. And so I got up, I stood, I tried to pedal off as fast as I could, and just when I thought I was free... That dog caught up with me, latched onto my ankle, and went up and down as I pedaled for probably a good third of a mile, uh, biting. It, the thing was onto my ankle good, and it was not letting go. Uh, I learned a lesson, well, a number of lessons, I guess. I uh, always let my sister get those and insist on it, those houses. But um, I, I, I learned something about dogged determination. Uh, this morning, we're in our third week in our series of Jonah, and so far we've seen that Jonah's not really so much about the big fish who swallows the man. Now, that, that's part of it, as we've seen, and we'll see again today. But it's really about God's relentless pursuit, God's dogged pursuit, you might say, of the undeserving. What Jonah wants us to do, Jonah wants us to look behind us and see God with all his sovereignty and all his grace running after us, pursuing us relentlessly until he has us as his own, and he uses us as, mercy, as vessels of his mercy, and he keeps us by that same grace with which he pursued. And so that's kind of what we're seeing. Today we're going to see yet another expression, if you will, of God's grace. We're going to see God's grace in crisis. We're going to look at this prayer of Jonah while he's in the fish, the belly of the fish, and through it we're going to see three things. The depth of Jonah's descent, 
We're going to see Jonah's recognition of God's sovereignty. And we're going to see the place that Jonah turns for hope. So the depth of Jonah's descent, Jonah's recognition of God's sovereignty and the place that Jonah turns for hope. Let me just read the whole section. It's one prayer. And uh, let me, I'll start with 117 so we kind of pick up where we left off. The word of the Lord reads this way. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again at your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. You know, the Bible um, is one book comprised of 66 other books. And those books are written by a collection of human authors. Some would argue 40 authors, some say 35, 38, whatever it is. The book, the book, the one book written by a number, uh, contains a number of books written by human authors, but in reality, and God, of course, used all those human authors. He used their style. He used their personality. He used their abilities to, to pen his word, but we also must confess that the Bible is actually, actually has one author, one divine author who made sure to include in this book everything he wanted in the book. The scriptures are in the Greek, theopneustos, they are breathed out by the very mouth of God. We might even say it more poetically like Moses did. The scriptures are written by the very fingers of God. This book is God's book, and God is a very good writer. And God employs all the creative elements and literary devices that exist to express precisely what he wants to express. Now, it's so interesting I say that because I was so fascinated as I started again to, to pick up and work through this, how in the first two chapters of Jonah, how the writer sets the stage for Jonah's continued descent, his, his spiral downward. Chapter 1, verse 3, we're told that Jonah went down to Joppa. And then the second part of verse 3, Jonah went down into the ship. And then in verse 5, we're told that Jonah went down into the inner part of the boat. And then in verse 15, that Jonah went down into the sea. He was thrown into the sea. And then in chapter 2, he was cast down into the sea, the deepest part of the ocean. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around me. I went down, he said, to the pit. The Lord is showing us in, in very vivid terms Jonah's plight. He kept going down, spiraling downward. But as he was going down, what did he do? He just started to dig in his heels. He became more and more stubborn. The Lord says, go, and Jonah says, no, and, and then they, the Lord hurls, as we saw uh, last week, this storm 
to get Jonah's attention. And he goes down to the, the, the bottom part of the boat and he just falls asleep. And these pagan Gentile sailors, they say, look, wake up, you sleeper, pray to your God. And Jonah won't pray. Jonah won't pray. He just keeps going down. He keeps getting caught up in his own self-reliance. Finally, they throw Jonah in the sea. They watch his body cascade to the bottom of the sea. And what does God do? He appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah up for Jonah's protection. And then finally, finally Jonah is brought to repentance. New Testament scholar Peter Craigie writes about Jonah's descent. He said, he kept going down. But not until he was all the way down, finally stripped of his buoyant self-sufficiency, was deliverance possible. Here's the first thing I want you to see from this passage, our first point. It's often at our lowest point that God's grace meets us and we're ready to receive it. It's often at our lowest point that God's grace meets us and we're ready to receive it. Jonah is at an absolute low, literally and figuratively. I mean, he's actually literally at the bottom of the ocean. You can't get any lower than that. Figuratively, he's broken. He is destitute. He is hurting. He is afraid. He's tried to fire God. He tried to resign his position as a prophet and go his own way. He's tried to escape God only to find that God was still with him at every turn. Jonah learns experientially the truth of what the psalmist wrote. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. And listen to this phrase. If I take the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Now, this is something Jonah was actually learning experientially. Even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me up. Jonah is so puffed up with hatred. He hates the Assyrians, so much. He despises the Ninevites so much that he refuses to do what God said. He would actually rather commit suicide than actually extend God's grace to the Ninevites. So the other men, he tells the other men, throw me in the sea to die, but we see it's not that easy. In the depths of the sea is where God meets him. He rescues Jonah by a big fish, and that's where Jonah is brought to repentance and restoration. And isn't this how it often works? Isn't it this where we see God's grace really at the end of our rope? We see it most clearly. Now, if I were to be very frank with you, I, and I would say if I were to kind of outline the way that I want my life to go, I, I know I would choose all the good things and not the bad. I would choose the winning and not the losing. I would choose the successes and not the failures. I would certainly not choose any humiliating failures, things that would, would be embarrassing to me. I would certainly not choose to be disciplined. I would not want God's discipline. I would choose all the good and none of the bad. But God loves me too much to let that happen. See, people who never mourn, people who never doubt, people who are never at a loss for answers, People who are never hurt, people who are never disciplined, people who are never brought low, they turn out to be self-centered, egotistical, ungrateful people whose spiritual senses are dulled to their need for the living God. 
but people who have experienced brokenness, people who have been hurt, people who have made terrible decisions, and they know it. They're not, they're not casting blame on anybody else. They know they've made these bad decisions. They're broken over them. They know the pain they've caused others, and they deal with it, and they admit it. Yet they also know how much they've been loved. They also know how much they've been forgiven. Those are the ones who know, experience, and dole out, so to speak, God's grace. A long time I was interviewing, a long time ago, I was interviewing with a church uh, to become their lead pastor. And uh, again, a long time ago. Um, and I was in the interview process, and, and I, I think things were going really smoothly, and, and I felt like I was answering all their questions well. And then I was in a conference call, and there was a kind of a long pause. And one of the ladies on the search team said, I've got a question for you. I said, sure. She said, tell me how you lead with a limp. I said, excuse me? She made reference to Genesis 32. She said, tell me how you lead with a limp. I said, what do, what do you mean? She goes, tell me how you've experienced brokenness and hurt and failure in your own life. I thought that was a terrific question. She would go on to say, because those who have never experienced brokenness, those who have rejected any attempts to make amends, to be contrite, to be broken, she said, I don't believe you can preach grace unless you know how much grace you've received. Now this is what we see in the book of Jonah, that God's grace meets us often at our lowest point. Philip Yancey, the the great writer, says God's grace always runs downward, never upward. Peter, you know, God's own disciple, apostle, the follower of Jesus, said that God rejects the proud, but what? Gives grace to the humble. God's grace meets us when we're broken. And sometimes we have to be broken. Sometimes we have to be humbled for our own good in order to receive God's grace. Now, look at Jonah's response again. Look at verse 3 again. He says, For you have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. And look at this next phrase. All your waves and your billows passed over me. There's no confusion in Jonah's mind about what's going on here. Even though he ran from God, and even though the sailors threw him in the ocean, Jonah knows that it was God's sovereign hand that cast him into the deep. For you cast me into the deep, he says. It was your waves and it was your billows that washed over me. The text makes it clear this was the Lord's doing. In fact, we've already seen this, haven't we? The Lord hurled a storm. The Lord appointed a great fish. This whole thing, this whole book is a testimony to the sovereignty of God. And Jonah recognized it, even as he languished in the belly of a fish. We don't know what kind of fish it was. We don't know what his accommodations were, but he's in the belly of the fish. And he realizes afresh the beauty and power of God's sovereignty. This is how he handled trouble. But I think a question for us this morning is, How do you handle trouble? Where where does your mind go when you're dealt a terrible blow? How do you make sense of a tremendous trial in your life when your finances take a downward turn? Where, Where does your mind go when that happens? When your marriage is struggling? When your relationships are strained, even within your own family? 
Even your own family, you see the relationships are still. Where does your mind go? What do you th- how do you handle trouble? How do you make sense of it all? When you've lost some really good friends. When you feel alone. When your job situation looks bad and your confidence hits rock bottom. What conclusions do you draw? How do you make sense of your circumstances? I believe that we could arrive at really one of four possible conclusions as to why bad things happen to us. If you're suffering now, maybe you're, even now, you're trying to make sense of this. Why am I going through this? What's happening? How do I actually reconcile these circumstances? Again, I believe that there are four possible conclusions that Jonah, that we can arrive at. Here's the first one. God didn't know these things would happen, but he is grieving with you. Now, this is, this is a position that gained considerable steam in the mid-1980s. It hasn't been that long ago with the advent, the spread of what's called open theism. Um, now, it's, it's kind of old news now. I don't hear a lot of people talking about it, but it still actually impacts a lot of 25 to 45-year-olds. Um, this idea that, that God, um, you know, he... he didn't know these things would happen. He's, he's grieving with you, though. Even God gets it wrong sometimes would be a conclusion. Unfortunately, though, the, unfortunately, this isn't very comforting to me. If God just gets it wrong sometimes because he doesn't know the future exhaustively, then why would we trust him? Why would we pray to him? Certainly wouldn't be very reliable if he just kind of had his open theist say kind of a general idea of how things would unfold. Furthermore, how could I be confident that things would actually work out well in the end if God himself doesn't really know? And more importantly, it's very hard, in fact, impossible to reconcile that approach with what the scriptures say about God. God says this about himself in Isaiah 46. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there's no other. I am God and there's none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, a man of my counsel from a far country. God says, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. In other words, God knows the future as well as he knows the past. He sees it all. He is all-knowing. Because everything that happens, happens in accordance with his divine decrees. Talked about with our graduating seniors. It's part of God's sovereign will. He sees it all with absolute clarity. So you could, you could arrive at the first conclusion, but it would be in violation of the scripture's teaching. Now, you could arrive at a second conclusion, and it's this. God knew what was coming and wanted to help, but he simply couldn't. This is Rabbi Kushner's answer to the question why Bad things happen to good people in his book. I believe it came out in 81 or 82. um, Why bad things happen to good people. It was this. God feels badly for us. He would love to help, but he can't because he doesn't have the power to override human autonomy. So Rabbi Kushner even goes so far as to say in his book, one day you'll be able to forgive God. It just takes time. Now, I don't know about you, but this is not the least bit appealing to me. A powerless God? A God who's up in heaven who wants to help really desperately, but in order to preserve what he, you know, human autonomy, 
He says, oh, I can't really do anything. No thanks, right? No thanks. Why would I ever pray to a God like that? And it certainly doesn't sound like the God of the Bible who the psalmist says shakes the mountains. Does that God sound powerless to you? He rips up the trees with the breath of his nostrils. He sits enthroned in majesty over the earth. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. doesn't sound to me at all like a God who wants to do something, but his hands are tied. Many, O Lord, are the wonders you have done. The things you plan for us, no one can recount to you. Were I to speak or tell of them, they would be too many to declare. So again, there were a lot of people who bought this best-selling book. We went, I don't know, multi-platinum or whatever books go. They bought all these books and they, they, they bought, bought into this philosophy that in order to preserve you know, human autonomy, God says, I'm stepping back. I'm not going to intervene. I would love to help, but I can't. That's not a good conclusion. Now, there's another, there's a third conclusion you could come to, which is growing the most amount of steam. God had nothing to do with your trials. They were meaningless and random misfortunes. I heard a pastor, I heard a pastor say this week, I was watching a video of a, a, a video talk on the resurrection. This pastor said, we can say some really dumb stuff when we don't know what to say. Like that nonsense we hear in the hospitals and funeral homes. Like, God has a plan, we just don't know what it is. But when I'm, this is this pastor going on, but when I'm experiencing loss and I'm feeling so much pain that it feels like nothing else ever existed, the last thing I need is a well-meaning platitude like, whenever God closes a door, he opens a window. That just makes me want to find the window so I can push that person out of it. Now, I I understand. I mean, there's some... Okay, there's, there's very little, but there's some truth in the matter that it's not comforting to offer sterile biblical platitudes. Like, for example, someone's going through a terrible thing, you say, cheer up, God has a plan in all this. Okay, that's not really that helpful most of the time. Or, and I hear this one trotted out a lot, someone's going through a terrible thing, well, God is sovereign. Yeah, that's true, but... If it's said in a way or a context, it actually can be off-putting and and not really that helpful. He says, this pastor says, don't say to someone, God has a plan for your life. We don't know what it is. Well, does that mean, though, that instead we're instead to conclude that there's no purpose in our suffering, that God is, is not in it? Some would argue this is actually the more reassuring view. Some say this is the only way that I can love and trust God is to know that he had no, nothing to do with the suffering I'm going through. But personally, I don't see it. I don't see it at all. And the summer of 2010 was a difficult one for me personally and relationally. I had two friends, both in their mid-30s, both uh, lost their lives. These are guys that I played softball with, uh, guys that I had lunch with, guys that I enjoyed, similar sense of humor. We, 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 were, we were friends. And within the span of a couple of months, they both lost their, lost their lives in separate tragedies. And in kind of a weird and very discomforting situation, I was actually at a men's retreat sharing about the death of one of these men. I was sharing about this tragedy. When I finished up, I sat down and I saw that I had a text message from Janine that said, David Beasley just lost or just had a car accident and lost his life. I can't stop crying. David left behind a wife and two children under four years old. Two kids under four. 
Well, imagine how Sabrina, David's wife, the mother of his two children, would have felt if she cried out to God, which I know she did, on her knees before the Lord, crying out to God, God, please hear me. Why is this happening to me? And God responded by saying, first of all, I want you to know that I love you deeply and I'm grieved by what happened. I promise you, I had nothing to do with it. This was simply a random misfortune, totally out of my control. Please, for your sake, don't try to find any divine purpose in your suffering. Bad things just happen. I do my best to turn these messes into something positive, but I can't offer any guarantees. My advice to you is don't get your hopes up for anything good to come out of this. If it does, we'll both be surprised. But I would encourage you to simply view your suffering as pointless. Now, put yourself for just a moment in, in the situation of Sabrina Beasley, who lost her husband of nine years, the father of her two children, four years old and younger. And this, she cries out to God, and this is what God says to her. How would that be comforting at all? I wouldn't be comforted in the least by that. And yet there are some who are saying, this is the way we have to view suffering. Well, fortunately, because I don't believe that's a biblical view, fortunately there's a fourth conclusion that you could draw, and it's one that flows right out of the text of Scripture, one that is highlighted in the book of Jonah. Why have we experienced difficulty in our lives? Here's a fourth conclusion you could draw. God ordains our trials for our ultimate good and His glory. Now, to be sure... To be sure, there's mystery in this. I, I don't, I, I've never tried to tell someone the micro reasons for their suffering. I don't know. N- nobody knows. Who can come along and say, well, here are the eight things that God's trying to do? No, he doesn't tell us the micro reasons. But he does tell us the macro reason, the big picture. And he says that when we go through things, we know that he is up to something good in it. He is sovereign and all-powerful. He's also infinitely loving and compassionate. And he ordains trials in our lives to strengthen our faith, to deepen our joy in him, to enable us to persevere, to prepare us for an eternal inheritance, to make us more like his son. The trial that you're going through, that you've been going through, it's not by happenstance. It's not a streak of bad luck. The easy and the difficult, God planned it all a billion years. Before you were even born, before you were even born, out of his wisdom and his love for you, and if, even if you're at a very low point right now, some of the things that I mentioned as sort of possibilities, they fit your scenario. Even if you're at a very low point right now, maybe the lowest point in years, you can know this. God is at work This very moment, he is still with you. He is preserving you. He is keeping you. He is loving you. He is shaping you. And he will see this through to the end in such a way that is for your ultimate good and his glory. And those two are never competing interests. They always, in the divine mind of God, work together beautifully. I understand this question, this conclusion doesn't answer questions like, 
Why is this happening to me? I, I understand that. Why am I going through this? How could God consider this good? And couldn't, have God, couldn't God have taught me what he wants me to learn in some other way? Well, again, he doesn't tell us what he's doing, but he does tell us that he loves us and he's faithful. And everything he does, he does for his own glory and the good of his children. Now, Jonah understood this. Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And listen to this. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and he heard my voice. Now, the text tells us that Jonah cried out from the belly of the fish, and then he says in his prayer, and he answered me. Which is really kind of odd, isn't it? Because he's doing this from the belly of the fish. If God answered, how did he answer him? He certainly hasn't been uh, removed from his suffering. If God had answered Jonah, why is he still in the fish? God hadn't done anything yet, or at least so it appeared. But here's the incredible part of, of Jonah's prayer. And by the way, we have just two points this morning with that, those four conclusions in the middle. Jonah's prayer here goes deeper than his immediate circumstances. In fact, Jonah actually sees an analogy between his physical condition and his spiritual situation. He sees an analogy between his physical scenario, being in darkness and apart from God because of his own rebellion. That's where he was physically. But he sees the connection there to his spiritual situation, once separated from God, once alienated from God, once in darkness, again, because of his own rebellion. The waters that enclosed around him, verse 5, they have a double meaning. Certainly they describe the physical water smacking up against him while he uh, was in the, the belly of the fish. So certainly this is a reference to the literal physical waters that are, that are hitting him, presumably in the fish, and whatever else is in the, in the belly of a fish, it's all sort of being, uh, it's sort of, he's being bombarded with that. But this all, there's also another meaning. The waters represent the waters of his bitterness toward God. The prison that he references in verse 6, certainly it means being enclosed in the insides of a fish. But his real prison was his unbelief and his resentment toward God. And what he's thanking God for, what he's praising God for, is not a rescue from the fish. He never even prays for that. He never even prays to be rescued. What he's praising God for at that moment is for his ultimate salvation, for his spiritual salvation. Jonah is praising God that even though he had rebelled and turned his back on God, God would not allow Jonah to wander away. God would not allow Jonah to self-destruct. God kept him by his grace. Jonah is using language that fits his present circumstance to showcase the power of God's salvation. Now, where does Jonah look for hope? Of course, he looks to God, but where specifically does he look for hope? Well, twice in his prayer, twice in his very brief prayer, he makes reference not just to heaven, but to God's holy temple. Verse 4, Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple, Verse 7, my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now, why did Jonah's thoughts go to God's holy temple? Well, it was because it was there at the temple of God that God ordered sacrifices to be made as a way of restoring sinners to himself. Jonah thought of the temple because it was at the temple 
that the blood of lambs was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Now, Jonah didn't know all that would come by way of Jesus. He didn't understand God's full plan of salvation, of course, but he knew the Hebrew Scriptures, and he knew that if he was going to be restored to God, to a holy God, it would only come through costly sacrifice. And that was why the temple existed, for the sake of these sacrifices. Again, where a spotless lamb was slain for sinners, blood sprinkled over the mercy seat. Again, Jonah doesn't fully understand how all this will play out. But here's what he knows. He knows that his rebellion must be paid for, either by himself or by someone else. Remember I talked about that single divine author? The author, God himself, is showing us that there's no other way for salvation except by costly sacrifice. He is pointing us ahead to the cross work of Jesus where the blood of God's Son was shed for us. This is why Jonah would conclude in his despair in verse 9, salvation belongs to the Lord. How could Jonah be restored? By remembering the Lord's faithfulness, the Lord's provision in spite of his own rebellion. Here's our final point. Faith is recognizing our unworthiness and clinging to God's costly sacrifice, His Son given for us. Salvation is the Lord's work. Salvation is the work of God. It's not, it's, there's no partnership involved here. It's not God does His part and we do our part. It's not God goes 52% and He takes the bulk of it and we go 48%. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This is what the whole Old Testament's about. Salvation belongs to the Lord, and it will be meted out, so to speak, in the person of God's choosing, the very Son that He would send to die. Now, when you're in a bad way and you're in a rough season, beside yourself with grief or maybe frustrated by your own decisions, don't conclude from that that God is not with you or that He doesn't love you Because of your trials, he's preparing you for an outpouring of his grace and his mercy. He's instructing you in a way that's so tender on the sufficiency of his provision in Jesus. He is the one who brought your life from the pit. And he will continue to work in you and through you to give you good things. It may not be the things you want. It may not be the things you expect, but God is working to bring good things to you that will strengthen your faith, that will deepen your joy in Him, that will allow you to understand at a deeper level than ever just how sufficient He truly is and how insufficient and inadequate and empty all of those other pursuits are. Those good things may not seem so good at the moment. Suffering never does. But God is producing in you a harvest of spiritual fruit, a future glory, a reward that you may see in part soon, but in full much later on. Whatever he's doing, he can be trusted. What he's asking you to do, what he's asking me to do, what he's asking us as a church to do is believe. 
to believe, to recognize as Jonah did. We don't deserve this. But also believe that all of these things are ours because of Jesus Christ, the one in whom we trust. Let's pray.